Chapter 11 is baseline bottle signs, monitoring devices, and history taking. So an introduction. Patient assessment is a skill the EMT must provide to every patient. An assessment is very, very important. The patient assessment helps you find out what is wrong with the patient and divide, decide what type of care should be provided. So again, that, that uh, patient assessment is extremely important. It's basically our foundation. If we do a very poor patient assessment, we're not going to have a full, complete, clear picture of what's going on with the patient. If we don't know what's going on with the patient, we're not going to be, be able to adequately treat the patient's condition, which in turn will lead to poor patient outcomes. So again, uh, assessment, including vital signs and so forth, is vital for us to come up with a field diagnosis and is going to dictate our care. Measuring vital signs over time reveals trends in the patient's condition. We can watch these trends to determine if the patient's improving, staying the same, getting worse. And the patient's history, talking to the patient, getting a past medical history, helps you understand the, their underlying problems as well. Gathering patient information. When you arrive at the scene of an emergency call, you must gather information about the patient's condition. We do this through looking, through an assessment, and through talking. And some information is going to be readily available, pretty obvious to us. Other in information may take some more detective work, us asking those questions, diving deeper into things that the patient tells us. And anytime we're talking or assessing a patient, just always respect the patient's dignity as well. All right, so vital signs are outward clues about what is happening in the body. Vital signs include things like their respirations, how fast they're breathing per minute, their pulse rate, how fast their heart is beating per minute, the condition of their skin, their pupils, how their pupils look. Do they respond to light? Blood pressure and their pulse oximetry as well. Again, those are things that we routinely get on almost every single patient we run on. We talk about baseline vital signs. Your baseline vital signs are the first set of vital signs that are taken of the patient. And our later findings when we repeat these vital signs, we're going to compare them to our baseline. Again, to determine, is the patient getting better? Is the patient getting worse? Or is the patient roughly the same? Some of these vital signs are detected by either looking, listening, and feeling. Other vital signs, especially things like pulse ox, are measured using specialized equipment. So starting off with vital signs, one of the vital signs that we are going to obtain on every single patient is going to be our or their respirations. And when we're evaluating or assessing respirations, it's more than just how fast they're breathing per minute. There's other things that we're looking at as well. We want to know the rate. That's going to be one of them, how fast they're breathing per minute. 
On top of that, we want to know the quality of those breed, those breaths. Are they normal? Are they deep? Do they appear shallow? Does it appear effortless? Or do they appear like they're working hard to breathe? They're labored breathing. And we also want to know the rhythm as well. Is it regular breathing? Or is it, or is the patient having an irregular breathing pattern? So we assess the breathing, respirations, rate, quality, and rhythm. So normal rates for an adult patient, the average range is 12 to 20 breaths per minute. So how we're going to assess respiratory rate is we're going to sit there and we're going to count the patient breathe. We're going to assess breathing, pulse rate, et cetera. If we're getting number per minute, we're going to count, in this case, they're breathing for 30 seconds. We're not going to do 15 seconds. We need to do a minimum of 30 seconds. Count the number of times they breathe in 30 seconds, and then we're going to multiply that number by Two. So if they're breathing six times in 30 seconds, we times six times two, that's 12 breaths per minute. If it's very irregular breathing, I would recommend go ahead and counting that full minute to make sure that we're getting an adequate, accurate, sorry, reading. However, if it's a regular pattern, counting it for 30 seconds, multiplying it by two is going to be sufficient. If we have respiratory rates that are less than eight, if it's eight or less, we need to highly consider bagging the patient with the BBM. If it's greater than 24, that's a little bit concerning, but not necessarily to the point where we have to ventilate, bag the patient. If it's over 24, that's telling me that something is probably going on that's causing them to breathe faster. And again, this is just one Pull one clue about what's going on with the patient. So we interpret our findings based on the overall patient presentation. Again, this is just one clue. We need to get all of the clues before we figure out exactly what's up with our patient. So we assist ventilations on an adult patient breathing at a rate greater than 40 per minute or an infant or young child breathing at a rate greater than 60 per minute. Like we mentioned earlier, if they're breathing that fast, their tidal volume is going to be crap with each one of those breaths. They, they don't have time to take a deep breath before that next respiration comes. So over 40 on adults, over 60, probably need to really start considering possibly bagging the patient to assist ventilation. So if they're breathing that fast, those muscles are going to get fatigued very quickly. They're going to go into respiratory failure pretty quickly. And again, that rate cannot be maintained. As well as that fast of a rate, their tidal volume is going to be poor as well. So again, our normal respiratory rates are age-dependent. Adults, 12 to 20, adolescents, roughly the same. But as those kids get younger, their resting respiratory rates are going to get faster. And again, an infant, 30 to 53 is considered normal. So again, when we're taking bottle signs, we definitely want to get the rate when we're counting their breathing, but we also want to look and assess other components of the breathing as well. One of those is quality. 
quality is the tells you the volume of air moving in and out of the lungs with each breath, and it's an assessment of our tidal volume. So ways that we can describe quality, normal. All of us in here are breathing roughly 16 to 18 times per minute, normal or unlabored. They can be shallow, they can be deep, they can be labored, unlabored, they can be may have noisy respirations, snoring respirations, stridorous respirations, etc. So normal, we have average chest wall motion and good air movement, normal tidal, normal tidal volume. If we document shallow respirations, that indicates that there is slight chest chest wall expansion with each breath. So again, if we have somebody that's breathing eight times per minute with shallow respirations, right there, we have a slow rate, so our rate is poor, and our tidal volume is poor by us saying that they're shallow. Again, both of those are going to be indications that, yeah, we need to ventilate the patient with the BVM. Now, if they're breathing 22 times per minute, or let's, let's move a little faster, let's say 28 to 30 times per minute, a little shallow, the rate's a little fast. Tidal volume is a little shallow, but it's probably not to the point where they need to be ventilated because minute volume is probably going to be okay since they're breathing fast with a slight reduction in tidal volume. So again, this is going to be a judgment call. But again, slow and shallow, that definitely means we need to ventilate the patient. So eight, six respirations per minute, shallow, definitely need to ventilate those patients. Labored respirations means that the patient is working hard to breathe. And noisy respirations or abnormal sounds of breathing as auscultated with the stethoscope or maybe not even needed with the stethoscope. Again, things like crowing, strider, gurgling respirations, all those are telling us something if we are hearing them. So noisy respirations, again, some of these we've kind of talked about. Strider is a harsh, high-pitched sound heard upon inspiration that indicates swelling of the larynx or obstruction of the upper airway, possibly from a foreign body airway. Again, strider, you typically do not need a stethoscope to hear. Wheezing, on the other hand, in many cases, you do need a stethoscope to hear wheezing. Wheezing is a high-pitched musical sound, and you need to know the descriptions of these uh, lung sounds and so forth because it's going to be on your test. Wheezing is always going to be described as a musical sound. So anytime you see musical sound, always uh, put that with wheezing. Wheezing is also normally at least first heard on exhalation. In some severe cases, it can also be heard on inhalation as well. But we tend to hear wheezing on exhalation, not necessarily inhalation. Crackles or rails, the term means the same thing. Again, everybody kind of has their preference. Crackles, rails, they're the same. It's a bubbly or crackling sound heard during inhalation, indicating fluid in the lungs. Bronchi is a snoring or rattling noise, normally in the larger upper airway, so we'll hear that in the upper lung sounds. Typically indicates increased mucus production. Bronchi, you, you typically hear that in older pneumonia. 
And again, there's some other noisy respirations. Snoring respirations, again, that indicates a partial airway obstruction caused by the tongue. Gurgling respiration means there's fluid in the airway. Strider or crowing, different sounds, but they tend to mean the same thing. Wheezing, again, musical high-pitched sound that typically indicates a bronchospasm or bronchoconstriction. Crackles, rails, fluid surrounding or filling the alveoli. Bronchi, again, mucus blocking the larger bronchioles. So we've assessed the rate, the quality. Now we also need to assess the rhythm of the patient's breathing. So their rhythms can be regular, is the regularity or irregularity of the respirations. The distance in between each breath, is it roughly the same? Is there the same amount of pause in between each breath, et cetera? So you, we may have an irregular, slightly irregular respiratory pattern because it can be affected by speech, activity, emotions, and other factors in a conscious alert patient. Now, my breathing while I'm sitting here and lecturing is going to be just a little bit uh, abnormal or irregular because I'm talking, I'm waiting to a natural point in order for me to pause and take a breath, etc. That is fine and normal for a conscious patient. However, an irregular patient or pattern, I'm sorry, with a, in a patient with altered mental status is always going to be a serious concern. So if they're unresponsive and their breathing is not regular, that is telling us that something is major going on in the body. So some abnormal respiratory patterns that we may come across, and you need to know these as well. One of those is Shane Stokes respiration. That is a rate and tidal volume that gradually increases, then gradually decreases, followed by a period of apnea. Apnea means no breathing. For up to 10 seconds, then the pattern repeats again. So in this patient, the patient's respirations are going to start kind of slow. They're going to get faster and faster. At the same time, they're also getting deeper and deeper. So they reach a certain point, then it's going to do a 180 and go back the other way. They're going to get slower and slower, more shallow and shallower, until they're going to stop breathing for a few seconds. Then that pattern is going to pick right back up again. Shane Stokes typically indicates head trauma, head injury. Fiat respirations, again, typically indicates head injuries. Similar to Shane Stokes, except for the tidal volume does not change, but the respiratory pattern is interrupted by periods of apnea. Apneuistic breathing is characterized by long periods of inhalation where the patient's seams appear to take forever to inhale. Ataxic respirations are irregularly irregular pattern of rate and tidal volume. Agonal respirations are long periods of apnea with gasping breaths interposed. So the patient is just going very long periods of time without breathing. And then every once in a while, they just kind of have an agonal gasp where they're not moving much air, any tidal volume really at all. And we treat agonal respirations like they're not breathing at all because they, they, they pretty much aren't. Two small respirations is a rapid respiratory rate with deep and labored tidal volume. Where we see Kussmaul respirations are typically in our diabetics that are suffering from diabetic ketoacidosis 
where their their sugars are extremely high, causing them to become acidic, and their pH is beginning to drop. A few small respirations we see with metabolic derangement syndromes like PKA. Central neurogenic hypoventilation is the same deep and rapid respiratory rate of at least 25 breaths per minute, but with a regular pattern. So again, those are the three things that we're looking at when we're assessing breathing, rate, quality, and pattern. And again, once we do skills testing and so forth for testing, I want when we assess breathing, it's more than just the rate. I want all three of those aspects explained. 28 times per minute, uncomplicated, unlabored, normal, that's going to suffice. But if you it will not count if you just tell me the patient's breathing 22 times per minute. Make sense? Need to go into more detail. All right. The next vital sign that we assess is the pulse rate or pulse. Pulse is a pressure wave generated by the contraction of the left ventricle. Left ventricle contracts, forces blood through the arteries. We can actually feel that pressure wave as it's get, that blood is getting pulsated, pulse pushed through the arteries. Pulse directly reflects heart function. We are feeling that heart beat. And just like with breathing, it's more than just the number. What we're assessing the pulse for is, A, the number, the rate. We're also wanting to feel the rhythm. Is it regular or is it irregular? And we want to, to note the quality. Is it strong? Is it weak? Etc. So location of pulse is where we assess, where we feel for pulses at on our patients. One area, pulse site, that we can feel is the carotid pulse. Carotid pulse is on either side of the neck in the groove between the trachea and the muscle masses. So how we typically find our carotid arteries or a patient's carotid arteries is we place our fingers on their Adam's apple and then just slide that laterally, and there should be a natural groove in their neck. That natural groove, we press down, that's where the pulse should be. Carotid, this is our go-to site. If we have an unconscious adult patient, we feel for, a, we should go directly to the carotid to feel for the presence of a pulse. We also have femoral pulses. These are the crease between the lower abdomen and the upper thigh. In the groin region. Both the carotid and the femoral pulses are considered central pulses. These other ones we're about to talk about are peripheral pulses. And remember, a patient will lose a peripheral pulse before they lose a central pulse if their blood pressure is dropping. So again, if we feel a peripheral pulse, don't feel the peripheral pulse, immediately go to assess a central pulse. And again, central or carotid femoral. Next site is the radial pulse. It's the proximal to the thumb on the palmar surface of the wrist in the groove just medial to the radius. This is our go-to pulse site for a conscious adult patient. We have a conscious adult. We tend to go directly and feel for a radial pulse. So for the radial pulse, it's on the thumb side. We feel the bony part of the wrist. Slide your hands on the inside. And there's a another little groove that your finger should slide into. 
hill over there, you should be able to feel the pulse. The brachial pulse is going to be on the inner part of the upper arm. I hate when my camera does that. The medial aspect of the arm, midway between the shoulder and the elbow, between the bicep and tricep muscles. For unresponsive infants or even responsive infants, where we check for a pulse site on an infant is the brachial site. It's also the artery that we listen for for blood pressure. Your popliteal artery or pulse is in the crease behind the knee. This is not routinely checked in the pre-hospital setting, but if we want to check distal circulation specifically to that leg more in detail, we can feel for a popliteal. Same thing with the posterior tibial. It's behind the ankle bone. Again, we normally routinely do not check that the pre-hospital setting. The dorsalis pedis, more commonly referred to just as the pedal pulse. This is the top of the foot on the greater toe side. This we do use pretty frequently in EMS. This is where we check for distal pulses in the lower extremities. So major traumas during trauma assessments, lower leg injuries, et cetera, that's where we will feel for a distal pulse on the feet. I guess on top of the foot, greater toe side. Sometimes it is very difficult to find on a patient. Even if it's normal, it can be difficult to find. So selecting the appropriate pulse location. If our patient is unconscious, the brachial pulse on children less than one year of age, so on infants, we should check for the brachial pulse on an unconscious infant. And a carotid pulse on anybody over the age of one, so children and adults, we should feel for a carotid pulse if they're unconscious. If the patient is conscious, one year old or older, Check the radial pulse. If no radial pulse is found, now we go back and check that carotid. Again, as that blood pressure drops, they will lose peripheral pulses before they lose central pulses. And again, if they're less than one, if they're an infant, we still go check the brachial pulse. The remainder of the pulses or locations are mostly utilized in assessing peripheral or distal circulation when extremity injuries are present. Again, femoral is another pulse alternative to the central pulse. The popliteal, the tibial pulse, so forth, we typically don't use those, but we do do the uh, pedal pulse on top of the foot. So assessing the pulses. When we are feeling for a pulse on a patient, do not use your thumb. You can oftentimes feel your own pulse rate in your thumb. So never use your thumb to check for a pulse. But we can use two or three fingers feeling over that uh, artery site. Oftentimes we do got to press down on it to feel it, but we don't want to press too firmly. If we press too firmly, you can actually cut off that pulse. Again, and it goes by feel. Some patients require quite a bit of pressure. Other patients don't require that much pressure. If we're feeling for carotid pulses, we never assess both carotid pulses at the same time. Those two carotids are the only thing feeding your brain. If we compress both of them at the same time, we're going to reduce the amount of blood flow to the brain. If the patient was conscious, we can basically knock them out doing that. 
So assess the pulse rate, quality, and rhythm. Radial pulse is assessed in patients older than one years of age. Again, that's our go-to if the patient's conscious as well. Brachial for infants, whether they're conscious or unconscious, brachials are go-to. Unresponsive adults or kiddos over the age of one, we can go to that carotid pulse. So again, while we're feeling the pulse, one thing that we want to get is the rate. How fast is that patient's heart beating in one minute? For an adult patient, average range is 60 to 80 for resting. And again, the younger the kid is, typically the faster that heart rate, resting heart rate, is going to be. And just like for respiratory rate, we're going to feel for that pulse for at least 30 seconds. After 30 seconds, we get our number, multiply that by two, and that's our beats per minute. If the pulse rate is extremely irregular, go ahead and fill it for the entire full minute to get an accurate reading. So 60 to 80 is normal. If anything is above 100 beats per minute, that patient is considered tachycardic. Tachy in this case means over 100. If it's lower than 60, the patient is bradycardic. And again, we're going to interpret these findings based on the patient's overall presentation. Patient has a pulse rate of, say, 52. Is that concerning for us? Depends. What type of patient are we dealing with? We're dealing with a 72-year-old male that has a history of high blood pressure and takes beta blockers. And their blood pressure is fine. No, 52 is probably not that worrisome. On the flip side of that, if it's a 23-year-old person that runs marathons, 52 is probably probably their normal. And it's absolutely nothing to worry about. So again, this is just another tool, another assessment finding. We're going to use this with all of our other clues to determine whether we're worried or not, what's going on with the patient. Any heart rate less than 45 beats per minute or greater than 130 per minute, though, is something that we are should be starting to get concerned about and kind of paying close attention to it. And again, it may not be concerning for our individual patient, but it is something that needs to make us pause and think what could be going on. Again, normal heart rates based on age, 60 to 100. For adults, adolescents, the younger the kid gets, the faster that heart rate tends to be. Again, so not only are we wanting the rate, but we're also wanting the quality. And what we're talking about quality for a pulse is the strength of it. Does it feel strong or does it feel weak? If it's strong, it should be full and normally strong. It should be very easy to feel. You can also have it be where it feels too strong. You call that a bounding pulse rate. If it's bounding, the pulse one is one that is abnormally strong, and that typically corresponds to high blood pressure. So if their pulse rate is bounding, that tends to indicate they probably have high blood pressure right now. A weak pulse does not feel full, may be hard to find, hard to palpate. You may feel it and then it kind of disappears on you, and then you feel it again. We can call that a weak pulse rate. It may also be referred to as thready. So weak and thready just means it's weak, hard to find, doesn't feel full. 
And again, we're also assessing the rhythm. Is it regular or irregular? Regular, again, it occurs at regular intervals with a smooth rhythm. Irregular, it occurs that we feel the pulse at irregular intervals. And you can have pulse rates that may be regularly irregular. You may have two fast ones, then a little bit of a, a pause, two fast ones, a little bit of a pause. It's still irregular, but it's still following a pattern. So we would classify that as regularly irregular. Or it can just be irregularly irregular where there's no rhythm to it whatsoever. It's just randomly kind of going off. Other things that we may note when we're filling for a pulse. Patient may present with pulses paradoxus, which is a decrease in strength of the pulse during inspiration. We're filling for that pulse, and we know every time that patient breathes in, the pulses begin to feel weaker. There's certain conditions, traumatic injuries that can cause this, and we'll talk more about those as we get to it. But it can indicate a serious cardiac or respiratory injury or illness or even significant blood loss as well. So pulse rate, quality, rhythm, related problems, rapid, regular, and full, maybe exertion, fright, high blood pressure, very early stages of blood loss. If it's rapid, regular, but weak, that's telling us that their blood pressure is starting to drop, indication of shock. If it's a slow heart rate, may indicate head injuries, barbiturate, narcotic overdoses, poisons, possible cardiac problems, or if there's no pulse whatsoever, obviously the patient's in cardiac arrest. Another component that we should assess is the skin of the patient as well. Skin color indicates how well blood is oxygenated, circulated to the skin, therefore how well the internal organs are perfusing as well. If the skin is perfusing well, we can take that as a pretty reliable sign that the patient's internal organs are perfusing as well, is perfusing well as well. Reason being is your body can shunt blood away from non-vital structures. So if your body's in trouble, it will shunt blood away from your skin to ensure that your vital organs are getting perfused. So if it's not shunting blood, skin's still getting perfused, organs are probably still getting perfused as well. When we assess the skin, we should assess it for its color, temperature, condition, and capillary refill as well. Overall skin condition should be assessed, and a more detailed assessment of color can be made by looking at the color of the nail beds, oral mucosa inside the patient's mouth, and the conjunctiva or the lining of the eyelids. Again, oftentimes we can see abnormalities there before we see it throughout the rest of the skin. Normal skin color is characterized as pink, and infants, children, Dark-skinned people, the soles of the feet and the palms can be evaluated. They should also be pink or normal in color as well. So again, pink is normal. Some abnormalities that we may see. If the patient is pale or pallor, they, their skin looks extremely pale. This may indicate severe vasoconstriction, blood loss, 
or both? A blue-gray color or cyanosis of the skin indicates inadequate oxygen levels to the tissues or hypoxia. Reddening of the skin or flushing of the skin may indicate heat exposure, peripheral vasodilation, or late findings of carbon monoxide poisoning. Typically, when we see flushing of the skin or reddening of the skin, if it's not if it's not a burn or not heat related, that's indication of vasodilation. Something is going on that's causing their blood vessels to dilate. Yellowish coloring of the skin is known as jaundice. When we see jaundice, that indicates a problem with the patient's liver. Modeling of the skin is a blotchy type of pattern on the patient's skin. We see this in very typically late shock with very low blood pressures, very poor perfusion, or where blood is pulling in the extremities. And it just looks blotchy. You'll have dark spots, light spot, dark spot, light spot. That's blotching or modeling. We also need to assess skin temperature as well. Now, I'm not talking about we're going to take a temp on every single patient. I'm, in this case right now, anyway, just how does that skin feel to the touch? So we can lift the patient's shirt, place the back of your bare hand on the patient's abdominal skin to get a sense of what that skin feels like. The skin feels hot to the touch. That may indicate the patient's suffering from a fever, heat exposure. It's cool to the touch, maybe a sign of inadequate circulation, shock, exposure to cold. If it's extremely cold to the skin, that means extreme, extreme exposure to the cold or the patient's been dead for very long periods of time. Normal skin temperature is classified as warm, warm to the touch. So again, we can lift the patient's shirt. I don't like doing that. I don't ever like making skin-to-skin -skin contact with a lot of my patients anyway. You should be able to feel it through our gloves. Our gloves are pretty thin. You should be able to feel temperature through your glove without having to do that. Condition, normal skin is dry. If we have moist skin, that may indicate shock. The patient is sweating. It's cool and clammy or sweaty. It uh, uh, can also indicate poisoning, heat-related, cardiac, diabetic emergencies, or many other conditions. A lot of conditions can cause sweating of the skin. And if the skin is both cold to the touch and moist, we often refer to that or describe that as being clammy. Diaphoresis is a term used to describe profuse sweating. So patient is suffering from diaphoresis or the patient is diaphoretic. Skin that is abnormally dry may be a sign of spinal injury or severe dehydration. Patient uh, lost the ability to sweat. Again, that may be a bad sign. Maybe extreme heat related as well. It's 110 degrees outside. We walk outside and the patient's skin is hot to the touch, but he's not sweating we would expect him to sweat, so the lack of sweating is a very pertinent finding. That's going to indicate heat stroke. Again, table 11-5 or skin color temperatures. 
and conditions and some of their problems that can be caused from it as well. While assessing the skin, we also are going to assess capillary refill. Capillary refill is the time it takes for compressed capillaries to fill up with blood again. So how we assess capillary refill, very easy to do. We press firmly on the skin or the nail bed. So for adults, we normally use nail bed. We're just going to press on the back of that patient's nail. And you can do it to yourself. You press on the back of your nail and you look and you notice that that area that you're pressing on is turned white. So after we press it, we turn it white. We remove your finger off of the nail bed. The compressed area, again, is going to be white. And we're going to count the amount of time that it takes for that white area to go back to its original color. So, again, that's all we have to do for capillary refill. Press on the nail, turns white, let go. We're going to count how long it takes to turn back to its normal color. For small kids or infants, we can just do the entire hand. Don't necessarily need to do just the nail bed. The upper limits of normal capillary refill times are two seconds for infants and children, male adults. Females are weird, so they normal is a little bit longer. They can take up to three seconds to go back to normal. How we typically describe cap refill is under two seconds or over two seconds. So four seconds is can be considered normal in your elderly patients as well. And if it's slower than that, what these normals are, that is may indicate shock in a patient. Again, we'll talk much more about shock in chapter, I think, 15 or 14. Capillary refill is a much more reliable sign in younger kids and infants than it is in adults. We don't base really any treatment decisions on capillary refill for adults. Again, we put a lot more weight in capillary refill in smaller kiddos, again, than we do in adults. Again, cap refill alone does not provide uh, enough information to determine shock, but again, is another tool to help evaluate perfusion. And again, just like everything we talked about, you must look at your patient as a whole with a complete assessment, complete set of vital signs before we make our treatment decision. So again, capillary refill on infants, pressing on the back of the kiddo's hand. You notice that area is turned white. And then we let go and count how long it takes for his hand to go back to his normal color. We also need to assess pupils. In assessing the pupillary reaction, we have to use a light in order to do this. We need to only use pin lights or lights that are designed to be shined in a patient's eyes. not an extremely bright flashlight. We're not going to pull out a three-cell mag light and shine it in the patient's eyes. It needs to be a pin light. What we're checking for when we're looking at pupils, we're looking at the size, shape of the eyes and how they react when a light is shined into it. Both eyes should react in the same manner regardless of which eye we're shining the light in. If we're shining a light into the left pupil, that left pupil should constrict. At the same time, even though the light's in the left eye, the right pupil should constrict 
uh, at the same time, same rate, and so forth. Again, what we're checking pupils for are size, equality, do they look the same on both sides, and how they react to light. Do they constrict, act normal, do they dilate when we remove the light source, does one side constrict while the other side doesn't, etc. Things to be on the lookout for. Top one right here, patient has constricted or very small pupils. This is very common what you see in a narcotics overdose or an opiate overdose. They get very tiny pupils, known as pinpoint pupils. Here's the opposite end of the spectrum. This patient's eyes are extremely dilated or large. And here we have unequal pupils. One of them's pinpoint, small. The other one's dilated and large. So again, that's one thing that we're looking at, just their overall size. And are they the same size on both sides? Pupil size, equality, reactivity, if they're dilated, that can indicate things like cardiac arrest. They'll also be fixed, meaning that they will not respond if light is shined into them. Drug use, uppers, LSD, amphetamines, cocaines, those all cause dilated pupils. Constricted pupils can be central nervous disorders. More frequently where we see constricted pupils are, again, is opiates or narcotic use. Sorry, unequal pupils. Strokes, head injuries, artificial eye, uh, eye drops can cause it if they only put eye drops in one eye, not the other eye. One eye can be dilated, the other not, or eye trauma. If you ever see something abnormal in a patient's eye, ask them immediately, hey, do you have eye problems? Is your eyes normally different sizes, et cetera? Because that is, it is relatively common. If they're non-reactive, they don't respond to light. I mean, cardiac arrest, brain injury, again, eye drops can do that as well. Drug intoxications or overdoses may do that as well. Again, we're also assessing how they respond to light and how quickly they respond to light too. If you shine light into their eye, it should constrict very quickly. If they are pretty slow to respond, we describe that as being sluggish. Sluggish peoples may indicate hypoxia, drug overdose, inadequate perfusion. If you're already in a, an extremely bright environment, we're going to have to shine or cover or shade those patient's eyes, let them adjust to that shaded before we shine that pin light in their eyes. Again, if that pupil does not respond to light, doesn't constrict to light, we call that fixed. And if we ever see pupils that are fixed and dilated, that indicates poor perfusion to the brain. Dead patients have fixed and dilated pupils as well. Okay. Any questions on any 